Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Ruth if you would as we continue. We have moved up to Ruth chapter 3. We're going to tackle that whole big chapter in one big bite this morning. As we look at a risky proposal, a risky proposal. You know, it used to be that wedding proposals were pretty simple. You know, dinner, maybe dancing, movies. Then the inevitable inevitable kneeling down on one knee and popping the question. However, today... That's too pedestrian, right? You you just can't do it that way. Something has to be much more exciting, more extraordinary, and something more extreme is expected now of the poor groom or bride-to-be who does the proposing. Today, you might see it from the depths of the ocean to the mountaintop, someone proposing, maybe even jumping out of a plane, even to outer space. Couples are now experiencing all different kinds of proposal. One of my favorites is who would have ever thought that convincing your girlfriend that you died in a horrific and bloody car crash as she watched could be a romantic way to ask her to marry you. Well, one man did, one Russian man named Alexia. He hired a film director and stuntman to help him fake his death before he rose again to pop the question out of the, out of the, out of the, out of the car wreck to question his heartbroken other half. She didn't scream at him. She didn't punch him in the face. Incredibly, she actually saw the funny side and said, yes. I guess it takes all kind. Well, today, Ruth is going to take a risky proposal and ask Boaz to marry her. Now, last week, we continued reading about the interaction between Boaz and Ruth in the barley fields. Boaz has been continuing to show himself that he is a worthy man as he provides for and protects the vulnerable Ruth. Showing generosity and mercy through the gift of hospitality, he stands in stark contrast to the other men of his times that were only doing that which was right in their own eyes. In this generosity that Boaz shows to them, he demonstrates the goodness of God towards his own children. But as we come today to chapter 3, we're now moving to act 3 of this story of redemption, of this love story. When we find Naomi is scheming, Ruth is proposing, and Boaz getting cold feet. This chapter sets in motion a risky proposal that Naomi hopes will rescue them from just surviving day to day to thriving under the kindness and goodness of Boaz. So with that, your Bibles, Ruth chapter 3, look at verse 1 with me. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth, to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you. Father, as we open up this chapter, we thank you so much for this beautiful story of redemption, this love story. And Father, this mirror is the love that you have for us. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at it, that you open up our minds to this ancient text, that we can understand it, we can interpret it, and then apply it to our lives. And may your spirit have free reign. And we thank you so much for your goodness towards us. In your name we pray. Amen. 
So as we approach this chapter, we saw last week that Naomi's uh, spirit has been refreshed. Remember once she said, call me Mara. Don't call me Naomi, which meant pleasant. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. God has taken my husband. He's taken my two children away from me. And, he, and now I have no grandchildren, no one who can continue our family and our legacy. Just call me bitter. God has taken everything. I am empty. But last week we saw a little change as her spirit has been a little bit refreshed and maybe a little bit of repentance and renewal is coming in to her from the kindness of Boaz. She recognized that the kindness of Boaz to Ruth and her has been a sign of God's blessing and care for them. Now that they have been fed, her mind turns to wed, to weddings. Her reflection or affection for Ruth is crystal clear as she calls Ruth, my daughter. There's now an affinity that, that is cemented in their relationship. Just as Ruth committed to following Naomi, Naomi now has reciprocated that commitment and considers her daughter-in-law's happiness. She's now thinking about her daughter-in-law. So this is where we come to this meddling mother-in-law type thing coming on. Naomi is concerned for her daughter, and she pledges, as we see here, to help her find Rest. Now, she's not speaking of, hey, take a nap. You've been working hard or sleep in. Life has been tough. You've been working in the fields and then doing all this. That word encapsulates the, the word or the, 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 the thought of security and tranquility that comes from having a husband, a home, and a family. Because you remember, Ruth abandoned all prospects of that from Moab when she followed Naomi. And so for in those days, it was important. It was, it was very serious if a woman was not wed. It's not like today where that was becoming more and more the norm. But for them to find stability, tranquility, it was found in a home. It was found in, in a husband and having children. And like all good mothers, she hatches a plan. She puts into action and she expects results from this plan. She is not going to rest herself until Ruth is able to rest, has a husband. Now, before we too quickly dismiss, to dismiss her schemes as a meddling mother-in-law, Pastor Mark Dever, Dever informs us, according to tradition, that Naomi, as the mother-in-law, actually has a responsibility both to perpetuate her husband's name by raising up an heir for him and also to provide for her daughter-in-law. So it was important, not only for Ruth, but for Naomi, for the lands that they owned, for the home that they had, and for the name of Elimelech to continue to go on. Now, moving to verse 2, Naomi relays her master plan by giving her some instructions on how to prepare, where to go, what to do, and how to respond. So look at verse 2. Naomi goes, Is not Boaz our relative with who these young women you were? See his winnowing barley tonight on the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Verse 4. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Now, first we see that she identifies Bo as the, as the object of the proposal. Here, here's the man. He's a worthy man. This is the one I want you to attach yourself to it. 
He's already proven himself to be a man of integrity, a man of kindness and generosity. But he also is a close relative of her husband, which is important in those traditions and in those times. Boaz is just the right candidate to be Ruth's husband and to carry on Naomi's husband's line. Now, secondly, Naomi has designed an eight-state plan that she has thought over uh, very, very carefully. Ruth is to wash up after working in the fields all day. She is to put on perfume. She is to bring her cloak with functions both as not only as a coat, but also as a blanket. She is to go where Boaz is staying. She is to keep out of sight. She is to observe where he's laying down. She is to then go to him when he falls asleep, uncover his feet. This is a strange one, I would admit. And then wait for his instructions. A foolproof eight-point plan, right? She is someone who is not failing to plan at all. And as usual, usual, Ruth, being an obedient, loyal daughter-in-law, agrees to this risky proposal and implements a plan. As the setting of the story now moves from their home, it now moves to the threshing floor as we go in verse 6. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor, and she did just as her mother-in-law had commanded. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Pastor John MacArthur helps us to understand this concept. This is not a familiar scene for us. A threshing floor was usually a large, hard area of rock, maybe uh, just a stone or some type of thing, or uh, uh, that was downward from the from the way the winds normally would blow. They would take then the, 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 the loose grain that they, remember they had taken all the grain, and they would throw it on there, and they would beat it, and then they would take the grain, and then they would throw it up in the air, and as the wind would come by, it would blow away the chaff, the things that were useless, and then the grains, which were a little bit heavier, would then fall on the ground, and then they would sweep it up, and they would put it in bags, so on and so forth. So they're at the end of the barley and wheat harvest. They're taking all those things. Now, remember uh, the picture I showed you last week of her beating it with sticks? So this is what they're doing on that threshing floor, but in a, a larger scale than what just Ruth was doing. And so in this case, it was a, it was a Mediterranean-type weather. It's, it's in the summer, so it would be nice. They would kind of sleep outside to protect their grain. So Boaz is there to make sure that no one comes, steals it, takes it, and things that are okay. To modern uh, audiences, this seems like a very odd plan. As strange as it may seem odd to us, we should... Not make the mistake, though, of thinking that Ruth has taken advantage of a man who's drunk too much or is trying to seduce him, as we read that passage. What the narrator is pointing out is that Boaz has eaten, he's drunk, and is, or he's not drunk, but he has drunk some wine, and his heart was merry. It, it's putting him to sleep. He is going to be out cold. It's been a hard day. He's satisfied, and he goes to sleep. He doesn't recognize or, or, or aware when Ruth comes down, uncovers his feet, and lays down besides or at his feet. He doesn't even notice that Ruth is there at first. And again, there is no hint. The scripture is not giving us a hint of Ruth trying to deceive or entrap him with any type of intimacy or things of that that would not be biblical. In verse 8, we read that Boaz finally notices that his feet are cold. Look at verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. 
And he said, who are you? Now, most of us have experienced moments like this, uh, that something started when something startles us awake. Maybe you had children that startle you. It's even more unsettling to find someone walking in your room or standing over us. Have you ever had that where you wake up and your child is right there standing over you or someone's walking in the room? That, that, that's unnerving at, at the very least. And so you can imagine that Boaz here, he's sleeping. He's in a deep sleep. He's tired. All of a sudden something wakes up and he notices that someone is laying at his feet and his feet are uncovered. Like what in the world is going on? Now, it was not uncommon, we should add, for women of ill repute, I want to be kind here, to show up at places like that because it was mainly made up of men. So it would not be uncommon for something like that to happen. However, Boaz is not that type of man. He is not looking for that type of company. He has not requested it. And to find a woman laying at his feet or someone laying at his feet would be very startling to someone. In his response to his question, as we continue in verse 9, Ruth answers. I want you to underline this passage, this, this line, this answer. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. That's an important portion of scripture, and we're going to look at it a little bit more detail in a minute. So here we have the proposal. She bases her proposal on a statement, a request, and a reason. She calms his nerves by replying that, hey, it's Ruth, you know who I am. And she is requesting that he marry her. Spread your wings over your your servant. That's the proposal. Since he is a close relative, you are a redeemer to her deceased father-in-law and former husband, deceased husband. Now, from what we've seen of Boaz... We should not be surprised by his reaction to repose. Now, we say it's risky because he could have said no. He, he could have done a lot of things here. But look with me in verse 10 to how he responds to this strange scenario. And he says to Ruth, may you be blessed my, uh, by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich, and now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for all that you I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And here's something I would just add: a worthy man will know a worthy woman. If you're looking for, if you're a man looking for a mate, if you're a worthy man, you'll know a worthy woman, and vice versa. Now, Boaz graciously accepts her proposal. Once again, he pronounces a blessing on her. We saw this. He did this earlier. And he points out, and, and he points out her kindness and worthiness. She is someone. She is a catch. She's proven herself as a woman of integrity. And she has acted morally. She's not chasing after men. She's not looking for money. She's also has acted loyally. She's staying within the family of, of Elimelech and her, and her husband, her deceased husband, and also legally by appealing to the law of Moses. Now, this is all captured very quickly in this scene. He understands quickly. I mean, he spent maybe about a month and a half, two months with her, and he recognizes this here is a worthy woman. At this point, I am sure Ruth lets out a long breath of air 
as he responds favorably to a risky proposal. Who knows what might have been going on in her mind as she waited for him or she waited for him to wake up so she could pop the question and receive his answer. He could have rejected her proposal as ridiculous. Remember, he was a man about in his 50s. She was in her 20s, probably. He could have taken her boldness in approaching him in this manner as an insult and as dangerous and something that could hurt his reputation. She could have lost the support of his provision and protection as he says, man, I got to get out of this. This woman is crazy. However, I suspect that she understood what type of man Boaz was. And she trusted that he would treat her well, even if he refused the offer of marriage. However, as we continue in the narrative, there's a hiccup in Naomi's plan. Whether or not she was aware of it or not, there was someone else that was actually closer in, rel- in, in relation to her than Boaz. Boaz informs her, look at verse 12. He says, now it's true that I am a redeemer. I am someone that can redeem you. Yet there is a redeemer that's nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Now, this was probably not the answer that she was looking for. It's like, hey, would you marry me? And and the woman responds, oh, you know what? There was someone else that I've been dating as well. You know what? Let me see what he's doing. Just can you wait till tomorrow? I'm seeing him later tonight, and I'll let you know what's going on. You can almost imagine kind of what's going through her mind. I don't don't know if Naomi knew this, if she was trying to circumvent something, or whether she was aware that there was a cousin or a brother, someone a little bit close, not a brother, but a cousin or some type of uncle that was, that was closer. However, she knows that Boaz is the better match. That's who she wants. So Boaz plans, says, I have a plan, and he promises to redeem her if possible. The narrator relates the rest of the story as we move on to verse 14. Here we are, we're still on the threshing floor. So she laid down at his feet until the morning. But it rose before anyone could recognize her, probably really early in the morning, 5, 5.30 or so. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and, she, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went out into the city. So as the early morning arrives, Boaz gives her about 60 to 90 pounds of grain. This this woman must have just had the muscles to carry it as a sign of security and also as a promise to Naomi. Tony Moretta remarks that this generous provision of food seems to have been provided for at least three reasons. Number one, it was a means of basic provision for two desperate widows. It was added food. Here's some more that you can take. Second, as we look, it would have explained why Ruth had been at Boaz's threshing floor should anyone see her leaving. Was she there doing something that she shouldn't have been doing? What's going on? You know how people are. What about their reputation? What about the rumors, the gossip? So he gives an excuse. But thirdly and most significantly, because he says give it to Naomi, it was a symbolic provision. It was a message to Naomi. This gift was meant to encourage and comfort Naomi. I think Boaz knew who was behind this plan altogether. So it was a sign, hey, Naomi, your plan is working. The third scene in the third act finally returns to the home of Naomi 
in Ruth as Ruth relays the night's events. So here she comes in the morning. She's carrying this 90 pounds weight of, of grain. And, you know, Naomi probably hasn't slept at all that night, wondering what's going on, running all the scenarios in her mind. And she just can't wait. She's probably standing at the door, just twiddling her hands, doing something. Finally, Ruth comes in. She stands up. What happened? What happened? And this is what we see in verse 16. When she came in to her mother-in-law, Naomi said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then Ruth told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter. And then Naomi replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Surely Naomi is pleased with the results of her plan. Confidently, she encourages and she strengthens Ruth with the belief that Boaz will not rest until everything is worked out. Next week, we're going to see that. He's a man that's true to his word. As the morning comes, he's going to take care of this issue. Now, as we come and we looked at the observation of what's happening there, I want to try to help us understand what is it telling us? How do we interpret it? What is it that the Holy Spirit wants us to understand? How is this profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction? And training in righteousness. Well, first, this passage paints a wonderful word picture that captures our need to be rescued and delivered from the circumstances and the consequences of sin. Remember, that's how we started in, in Ruth chapter 1. We looked at Ruth and, and the family. They're, they're, they're facing calamity, the famine that God brought, but also tragedy, the death of those three men due to their sinful choices. They find themselves in a country destitute, in poverty, with not many opportunities. They go back to Bethlehem, and there is a house there that, and a piece of land that Elimelech owned, but they cannot take care of it. They cannot pay for it, and plus there's no one to take over. They're eventually going to lose it. But what we find here is a redeemer. And we find the theme of the kinsman redeemer. We, we started it last week. We're going to add to it this week. That term, kinsman redeemer, Designate one who delivers or rescues. Last week we saw this term defined by Pastor John MacArthur who notes that a close relative could do three things. A redeemer or kinsman redeemer would redeem a family member that's sold into slavery. They could buy them back. It was They could redeem a land that needed to be sold under economic hardship. So this is maybe what Naomi was facing to do. She needs to sell this land to pay for her and Ruth to exist. But also, they could redeem the family name by virtue of a Leverite marriage. And we're going to take a look at, look at that in a minute. As you take your Bibles and turn, if you would please, to Deuteronomy 25. So if you're in the book of Ruth, just go back to the book be, uh, before it, or several books, I'm sorry, Judges, then Joshua, then Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25. So Naomi, looking at their circumstances, the calamities they went under, the tragedies they have suffered... She sees Boaz and this marriage proposal as the answer to those last two. The land that needed to be sold so they, could, so they wouldn't have to sell it or they could sell it to someone who would keep it in the family, but also someone who can help give them a marriage mate, preserving both the land and the name of her husband and oldest son. The answer to this is what they see is a liverite marriage. You see that term there. We find this practice in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Look at verse 5. And this is the Holy Spirit saying, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, 
the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. So this is something we know, okay? Two, uh, a husband and a wife, so, you know, they get married, all right? And so one, the husband dies, but they have no children. What is that widow going to do? Again, the life of a widow was very, very difficult, especially if they had no children to take care of them. There's no welfare state. There is no way that and they're either left to begging or finding someone to help them through. He says she's not to go marry someone else outside the family. Instead, her husband's brother, if he's single, shall go to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. In other words, he is to marry her, take care of her, and to give her children. Verse 6, And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. The website GotQuestions.org defines this, and let me try to put it in a little bit more modern language. They write that a liberate marriage is literally, literally a marriage with, it, with a brother-in-law. The word liberate, which means has, has nothing to do with the tribe of Levi, but it comes from a Latin word, levir, which means a husband's brother. In ancient times, if a man died without a child, it was common for the man's unmarried brother to marry the widow in order to provide an heir for the deceased. A widow would marry a brother-in-law, and the first son produced in that union was considered the legal descendant of her dead husband. So again, Elimelech has a house. He has a plot of land that God has given him. But because he died... And then his, both of his boys died, and there's no sons. Who's going to get that land? All Naomi, and they have no daughters, by the way, as well. Daughters could, in those days, also inherit. But there's none of that. So Naomi, in the end, is going to wind up having to sell that land to someone else, and they would lose it. So in this case, what a liberate marriage would do is someone in the, it could be a brother, then it would move to a cousin, and so on and so forth like that, is that they would, they would marry the, the widow, and the first son that she'd have would then inherit everything from that one who died. So that land would stay in the family. The property would stay in the family. The name, family name would continue. Ronald Eisenberg notes that this practice guaranteed the widow a new family and enhanced status and financial resources. Now she has a home. She now has a son who can then take care of her as, she, as he becomes older. Now, failing, by the way, now this is important because failing to do this had serious consequences. Are you still in uh, Deuteronomy 25? Look at verse 7. And if a man does not wish to take his brother's wife, and you can see where that might be kind of odd, might be a little bit awkward, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gates of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Verse 8, then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him and even persist saying, I do not wish to take her. I will not perform this. Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull off his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to this man who does not build up his father's house and the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. If you want a real bad way to get on someone, you ought to just say, you're someone whose sandal's been pulled off. Uh, this was very, very serious. 
It's not only serious because I'll tell you, to be honest, God killed a man because he would not do this. He killed Onan, Tamar's, hus- uh, Tamar's brother-in-law. When, God, when Judas says, you need to perform this duty, he wouldn't do it. God killed him. It's one of the men that God killed personally for not honoring his deceased brother and widow. As you might recall from several weeks, the Sadducees used this practice to ask Jesus a silly hypothetical question in Luke when he says, hey, a widow married this man and married seven brothers. Whose whose wife is she when, when they get to heaven? However odd as this may seem to you and you and I, Naomi and Ruth are banking on this practice to provide security, stability, and children to continue the family line, the family name. So what is happening is very important. The kinsman redeemer was very important in those days. As we pointed out, the kinsman redeemer, though, points to a greater reality than just a, a, a poor lucky brother or a poor unlucky brother has to marry his, his sister-in-law. It has much more to do that. Look here on the monitor. I believe I might have it here. In the New Testament, Christ is often regarded as an example of a kinsman redeemer because as our brother, the scripture calls those of us who are children of God, we are his brother. He also redeems us because of our great need, one that only he can satisfy we go on, I believe, in Ruth 3, 9, we see a beautiful and poignant picture of the needy supplicant unable to rescue herself, and she's requesting of the kinsman redeemer that he cover her with his protection, redeemer and maker his wife. And I believe I have one more. In the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ bought us for himself out of the curse, out of our destitution, He made us of his own beloved bride. He blessed us for all generations. He is the true kinsman redeemer of all who could call on him in faith. So we look and say, why has God given us the book of Ruth? It's a story of redemption. It's showing us how God is going to redeem not only Israel, but also all of us who trust in him. Just as these two women are facing calamitous circumstances due to the sovereignty of God and the tragic consequences of their own sinful decisions and are in need of a rescuer, a redeemer, so are you and I. For we too need to be rescued. We too need to be redeemed. You see, in God's wisdom, he has decreed the fall of all humanity putting us under the curse of sin and death. But scripture also points out that you and I have chosen sin and we fail to conform to God's moral law in our attitudes, our actions, and our very nature. This circumstances and the consequences that you and I lead and have in our life have led to every form of suffering from colds to cancer, from weeds to whirlwinds, from failures in our resources and failures in our relationships. There is no escaping these monsters and enemies that seek to destroy us. We tried to deal with these circumstances and consequences through coping mechanisms, right? Such as drinking, drugs, using our family, or even uh, other pleasure experiments. 
However, as much as we may try denying, deflecting, or diverting this reality, we can find no hope, no long-lasting respite. Ruth would not be able to continue to work in the barley fields, beating up uh, the, the heads off of them day in and day out. Eventually, she needed a way to escape the reality they had found themselves in. That is you and I. All man-made religions are a fruitless attempt to deal with this calamity and tragedy. We need to recognize that. But God has made a better way. (coughs) The solution to Naomi's and Ruth's problem is the same for you and us. A redeemer, a savior, a messiah to right all that has gone wrong. The role of Boaz in this redemption love story points to that of Jesus Christ, a worthy man, the son of God in the redemption plan of God to rescue his children and to redeem us from our sin. Our cry to God should mirror that of Ruth that I had you underline earlier is I am fill in the blank. I am your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you our Redeemer. Hence why I wanted you to underline that. That's the cry of every sinner. It's recognizing that who we are, who God is, our need for a Savior. In short, she acknowledges three things with that proposal. She acknowledges her lowly status. Can you go back to that, Ben? Thank you, just for a moment. Her lowly status. I'm just a servant. I'm no one. You have given your kindness, your hospitality, your generous, uh, your generosity, and I do not deserve it. She then acknowledges her need for protection and provision and progeny, children. She recognizes that only he is able to do that. He has both the ability, the position, and the power to provide these things. But Jesus is an even greater redeemer in that he can rescue us not just from the things that happen to us today to day, but he can rescue us and redeem us from the curse of sin and death. The word picture of a redeemer spreading his wings over someone captures the beauty of a mother hen or a mother eagle or dove wrapping their wings over their little ones, providing comfort shelter, and protection. That's what Ruth is asking for. Even the animal kingdom reflects the wonderful care and goodness of God. As scripture relates here, seen here, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind, mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. In Ezekiel, when I passed by you again and I saw you, this is the Yahweh speaking of Israel, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the, uh, the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. That same promise now goes to you and I. We are the bride of Christ. This interaction of Ruth and Boaz displays the relationship between Yahweh and Israel, but then also you and I with Christ. Jesus was sent by the Father to redeem us, to be our kinsman redeemer, 
to redeem us from our sin by providing not only by paying the penalty of our sin, but also earning our righteousness before God. In doing so, the Father covered us with his wings, granting us both provision and protection against the schemes of Satan, giving us strength to endure any and all suffering brought by either the sovereignty of God or our own sinful decisions. You and I need to cry out the same cry as, as Ruth. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we were bought with the price. It tells us that God, through Christ, reconciled the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses of them, uh, to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Then he goes on to say that he made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness. Just as Boaz has cold feet to get our attention, God has brought his sovereignty and, and our sinful decisions to get our attention, that we may cry out for him to come and cover us. Now, as we understand the passages being about a kinsman redeemer, how do you and I then take that and apply this to our life? Despite the circumstances that they found themselves in or the consequences of their sinful decision, Ruth here is placing, Ruth and Naomi are placing their confidence in the kindness of Boaz, that Yahweh will hear their plea, their risky proposal. In that same vein, you and I need to be like Naomi and Ruth in being confident that God hears the pleas and prayers of his children if we have the same attitude. So in other words, you and I need to be like Ruth in which we acknowledge our lowly status. We are sinners for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. It tells us that none seek after God. It says that our minds are actually hostile to the things of God, that we were rebellious children, disobedient towards him, following the prince and power of this world, speaking of Satan. Too many times we think, well, I'm good person. I'm good enough, though we typically compare ourselves with someone much, much worse. Well, I'm better than Hitler. That's the right thing, right? I'm better than Hitler, at least. I'm better than X, Y, Z. But God says it doesn't matter. You must be perfect as the Father is perfect. That's what God requires, by the way. If you want to see the new heaven, new earth, you must be perfect. As Jesus said, there is no one good but God, God alone. So we need to recognize and acknowledge our lowly status. We then need to cry out for our need for protection and provision. Father, please protect me from Satan. Provide for me that which uh, what God requires is perfection. But then number three, we need to acknowledge that Christ not only has the position as the Son of God, but he also has the power to provide all that God required. I pray that you do so today. Do you still need a Redeemer? Do you need someone to lift you out of the mire of your own sin, the depths of your own depravity? If so, would you acknowledge that you are a sinner, your need of a Savior, and put your trust 
in Christ? Would you do so today? There's no special words. You can just take those three things I just said and just call upon him. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's nothing else that you need to do. You don't need to jump a poo or skip a, skip, you know, a beat or anything like that. Just call upon him. You know, Randy and I and Landon stand by later after the service. We'd love to give you the confidence how you can know that you have eternal life. But if you're here, Christian, and you have done those three things, I encourage you to continue what he's called us to do. As the bride of Christ, as Ruth is going to be the bride of Boaz, we'll see next week. We need to continue what he calls us to do in James chapter 4. Men, we're looking at this this past week and how we can be worthy men. This goes if you want to be a worthy woman. He tells us to do several things here. There's action steps all through this. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be wretched and mourn and weep. That's that recognizing, acknowledging the low state. And let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Thousands of years before this was written, Ruth was living this out. And she followed the plan of Naomi to find the redeemer, the rescuer they needed. I pray today that you would find the same rescuer and redeemer, Jesus Christ, who can save us from our sin. And then we can live our lives as the bride of Christ, as he's called us to. With every head bowed and every eye closed, just for a moment as the worship team makes their way up and Randy for our pastor's prayer. I just want to take a moment just to pause and consider this Act three, this view of the Redeemer. I'm going to ask you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, how should I respond? Do I need to acknowledge my low status? Do I need to ask for the Savior to come? Do I need to trust in Christ? Or do I just need to live as one who is a bride of Christ? Whatever the Spirit may be encouraging to do, would you pray and respond to his work? Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.